This is our believers meeting, January 14th, 2023. We're going to start off the new year receiving communion. And before we do, uh, we want to have a little Bible study here on understanding communion from the Word of God. So that's what we're going to um, be teaching on today. Holy Communion is more than a religious ritual. It's more than grape juice and crackers. It's more than a religious tradition. And depending on um, where you went to church, if you grew up going to church, uh, how often you received communion would depend on your denomination. Some uh, churches have communion once a month. Some have communion every Sunday. Some have communion once a quarter. Um, I think in the Catholic Church, they probably have communion at every Mass throughout the week. So, um, you know, it's up to uh, each church as to how they, how often they want to uh, have communion. But when Jesus took communion with his disciples, was he instituting a religious ritual or was he really communicating something to them and to us as new covenant believers? I believe what he was communicating was so important that it was already being practiced in the early church in Acts chapter 2 and continues to be practiced throughout the world today. Jesus commanded us to practice it. So let's um, look in the Word and see its significance and its meaning. Uh, as a foundation here, we're going to lay a foundation here and we're going to talk about the nine components of a covenant. Number one, covenant promises. Number two, a blood sacrifice. Number three, a bloody path. Number four, blessings and cursings. Number five, a mingling of blood. Number six, change of names. Number seven, exchange of gifts. Number eight, a covenant meal. Number nine, a memorial event. And all of these covenant components are incorporated into the covenant Jesus made with you and me. So first of all, let's start out by talking uh, a, a little bit more in detail about covenant promises. Historically, when um, covenants were made, they were primarily made for four reasons. Number one, they wanted a relationship. Now this could be between individuals or families or tribes or groups of people. Number one, they wanted a relationship. Number two, protection. Number three, trust. And number four, love. When you entered into a covenant with someone, 
These were guaranteed and you could depend on them. In every covenant, there was an exchange of promises. This is why there are promises and vows made during marriage. And it's based on the ancient tradition of making a covenant. 2 Peter 1 verse 3 says, According as his divine power hath given unto us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him that hath called us to glory and virtue. Jesus made a covenant promise to us that he would give us everything we need for life and godliness. In the new covenant, Jesus has bequeathed to us all things, that word there in the Greek means nothing excluded, all things, everything that pertains to this present life and godliness, which includes eternal things and God-likeness. So God has not only given us everything we need for eternity, he has also given us every, everything we need for this life. We have covenant promises. We have been given the blood of Jesus, the word of God, the power of the Holy Spirit. Salvation, which includes soundness, preservation, deliverance, healing. All of these things are for life, this life. Godliness, the power of the Holy Spirit to walk with God, and the promise of heaven. All of this is incorporated into our covenant promises. Verse 4, whereby are given unto us exceeding great and precious promises that by these ye might be partakers of the divine nature. Now the word partakers here in the Greek is the word koinonia. We're familiar with that. It's often translated fellowship in the Bible. Um, it means things that are common or mutually shared, such as property that jointly belongs to two or more people. It conveys the idea of engagement, involvement, fellowship, or participation. So when we entered into covenant with Jesus, we share the same nature through these exceeding great and precious promises. Because of this, verse 4 goes on to say, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. So the life of God in us at the new birth and incorporated into this covenant we have with Jesus, this life of God has literally separated us from the decay and the rottenness in this natural world. Number two, a blood sacrifice. The word covenant means, in the Hebrew, to cut where blood flows or to cut until blood flows. Jesus made this new covenant and sealed it with his own blood, securing forgiveness of sin and writing the law of God in the hearts of believers. This was prophesied in Jeremiah 31, verse 31 to 34. It says, Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel 
and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, which my covenant they break, although I was an husband unto them, saith the Lord. But this shall be the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, saith the Lord, I will put my law in their inward parts and write it in their hearts and will be their God and they shall be my people. And they shall teach no more every man his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them unto the greatest of them, saith the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. The rituals of the old covenant were replaced by the gospel of Christ, which he established by his death. Hebrews 8, verse 6 to 7 says, But now, under the new covenant, hath he obtained a more excellent ministry, by how much also he is the mediator of a better covenant, which was established upon better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, then should no place been sought for the second. Hebrews 9 verse 12 says, Neither by the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood, he entered once into the holy place, having obtained eternal redemption for us. Hebrews 12 24, And to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, and to the blood of sprinkling, that speaketh better things than that of Abel. The third component of a covenant, a bloody path. In the new covenant, the bloody path was created by Jesus' own blood. He walked in his own blood from the beating that he received and as he carried his own cross. In ancient covenants, there were usually witnesses to this walk through the bloody path. Now, in the ancient covenants, it would be an animal, uh, perhaps a, a bird or something. Uh, they would divide it down the middle, split it into two halves, and then uh, people would walk up and down between this bloody path, and they would make these vows and promises and of course, we know God did this with Abraham. Uh, uh, talks in Genesis about uh, God had him bring the sacrifice, and God Himself walked up and down through this bloody path, the blood of that animal sacrifice, and He made uh, these promises, covenant promises, to Abram. So uh, this is. This is how the ancient covenants worked. Uh, and there were usually witnesses to this walk through the bloody path. In our covenant, Jesus walked through the streets of Jerusalem in his own blood. The streets were lined on both sides by hundreds and probably thousands of people witnessing this event. And those people did not realize at the time that they were witnesses to a covenant 
God was cutting with you and me. The fourth component of a covenant, blessings and curses. Ephesians, Ephesians 1 verse 3 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who hath blessed us with all spiritual blessings and heavenly places in Christ. When Jesus saved us, he spoke blessings over us. The word blessing in the Greek um, is um, uh, the word uh, eulogia. It means to speak good words, and it's where we get the English word eulogy, uh, which means to speak good words over someone or about someone. Blessings have been spoken over us because we are in Christ. The fifth component of a covenant, the mingling of blood. Leviticus 17.11 says, For the life of the flesh is in the blood. When someone gave their blood, they were literally giving their life. If you partook of someone else's blood, you became a co-participant in their life. You became flesh and blood with that other person. When you partook of someone else's blood, you became a legal brother of that person. If you've ever seen uh, some of the Western cowboy films, uh, sometimes they will have a, a a cowboy uh, who would befriend an Indian or an Indian befriend the cowboy. Uh, and these two would make a blood covenant between them. And they would make a cut usually on their arms. They would rub their arms together there and they would mingle their blood and they became blood brothers. And from that point forward, there was peace between them and peace between the tribe and um, the cowboy. You know, they would protect each other. There was a legal bond there between them. They, they, as far as they were concerned, they were legally brothers. This is why through the blood of Jesus, we are brothers and sisters in Christ, and Jesus is our elder brother. Hebrews 2.11 in the New Living Translation says, So now Jesus and the ones he makes holy have the same Father. That is why Jesus is not ashamed to call them his brothers and sisters. Jesus gave his blood, and we have participated and taken his blood. We became brothers with Jesus through the covenant he made with us. Colossians 1.14 says, In whom we have redemption through his blood, even the forgiveness of sins. We became partakers of the divine nature. Amen. The sixth component of a covenant, the change of names. Jesus gave us his name. In Mark 16, verse 17 and 18, 
Jesus said, And these signs shall follow them that believe in my name, shall they cast out devils. In my name they shall speak with new tongues. In my name they shall take up serpents. In other words, they'll, they'll handle that old serpent, the devil. In my name, if they drink any deadly thing, it shall not hurt them. In my name, they shall lay hands on the sick, and they shall recover. In John 13, verse 14, and Jesus said, And whatsoever ye shall ask in my name, that will I do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. John 16, 23, Jesus said, Verily, verily, I say unto you, Whatsoever ye shall ask the Father, in my name, he will give it you. Acts 4, verse 12. Neither is there salvation in any other, for there is none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. Colossians three seventeen, And whatsoever ye do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God and the Father by Him. When we entered into covenant with God through the blood of Jesus, the power of attorney to use the name of Jesus, the name above every other name, was bequeathed to us. We can confidently command and pray in the name of Jesus and expect results. The seventh component of a covenant, the exchange of gifts. 1 Samuel 18, verse 3 and 4. Then Jonathan and David made a covenant because he loved him as his own soul. And Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was upon him and gave it to David and his garments, even to his sword and to his bow and to his girdle. In this covenant uh, ceremony, the robe represents identity and authority. When Jonathan gave his robe to David, he was giving him his identity and his authority. The sword uh, represents giving his power and protection to David. The girdle represented all of his wealth and possessions. In other words, he was saying, everything I have is at your disposal. When we entered into covenant with Jesus, he gave us his identity. We became, uh, he became what we were so we could become like him. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For he hath made him to be sin for us, who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Romans 5.19 For as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners, so by the obedience of one shall many be made righteous. We have been given his weapons and power. Ephesians 6, 10 and 11. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that ye may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. 
And in that scripture, he goes on to describe the armor of God. 2 Corinthians 10 verse 4. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds. Philippians 4.13 I can do all things through Christ which strengtheneth me. So in the new covenant, Jesus gave us everything he possesses. In John 16.15 he said, All things that the Father hath are mine. Therefore said I that he shall take of mine and shall show it unto you. If it belongs to Jesus, it belongs to us through the new covenant. His name, his identity, his power and protection, all of his wealth and possessions are at our disposal. The eighth component of a covenant, a covenant meal. And this brings us to communion. Covenants shared bread and wine. Bread represented the person's flesh, all that is his, all of his material possessions. So when you give someone the bread in communion or when making a covenant, you're, say, you're saying to them, there is nothing that I will withhold from you. Everything I have is at your disposal. The wine represented a person's blood. And there's a reason why the wine came after the bread. It's saying, I am not only making a promise that all my possessions are yours, I'm empowering that promise and I'm backing it up with my own blood. The person guaranteed the promise with their own blood. It symbolized the joining of life, the joining of wealth, and you and I have become one in every way. Jesus literally did this with his disciples on the night he was betrayed. He was not establishing a ritual. When he gave them the bread, he was saying, everything I have is yours, and I am so committed to this. I will also give my blood to back up this promise. What a powerful revelation. The ninth component of a covenant, a memorial event. When there was the cutting of a blood covenant in ancient times, there was um, a witness or a memorial event. Something was done to signify or to remind people that a covenant had been made. They would do something like plant a tree or uh, pile up some stones or erect a column or a, a pillar or something like that. In our case, we have been given a witness. Romans 8 verse 16 in the complete Jewish Bible says, The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirits that we are children of God. The Holy Spirit is a living witness. 
that we have entered into covenant with Jesus Christ. Ephesians 1.13 says, In whom ye also trusted, after that ye heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also, after that ye believed, ye were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. And Ephesians 4.30 says, And grieve not the Holy Spirit of God, whereby ye are sealed unto the day of redemption. The Holy Spirit himself has been given to us as a memorial and as a witness that we are in covenant with God. His protection, his authority, his identity, his name, his power, all that he has is at our disposal. All of this belongs to those who enter into covenant with Jesus. Romans 8, 17 says, And if children, then heirs, heirs of God, and joint heirs with Christ. This is not a figure of speech. We have been made blood brothers, joint heirs with Jesus. We have partaken of his blood through a divine blood transfusion. We have been born again. We are partakers of his divine nature. We share his nature. We have become one with him, separated from the corruption in this world. We have been made heirs of God and joint heirs of Jesus Christ. So you can see that when you get a revelation of this, it will keep sin out of your life. There's no way that you can have a revelation of this and be living in sin. Every component of a covenant was made by Jesus when he died for you and me. And all of this is what these elements of bread and wine or juice, that's what all these elements mean for you and me. Now, um, in Matthew, Mark, Luke, in Matthew, Mark, and Luke's account of the Lord's Supper, each one begins with the record of Judas's betrayal of Jesus, and we're going to uh, see how this kind of comes to be significant as we continue. When each of the gospel writers begin to record the events of communion, they begin with Judas's betrayal of Jesus. In Matthew's account, verse uh, chapter 26, verse 14 and 15 says, "Then one of the twelve called Judas Iscariot went unto the chief priest and said unto them, What will you give me, and I will deliver him unto you? And they covenanted with him for thirty pieces of silver. Now underline that word covenanted with him because that's very significant. So before Judas partook of the covenant of communion with Jesus and the other disciples, he had already entered a covenant with the religious leaders to hand Jesus over to them. 
he had already, he had, before he even went to that upper room, he had already betrayed Jesus. He had already covenanted with the, with the religious leaders to hand Jesus over to them. So when he sat at that table with the other 11 and he partook of that covenant meal, he was just going through the motions. He was acting. He was pretending. He already had betrayed Jesus. He was not entering into covenant with Jesus. He was acting. He pretended as if everything was okay between him and Jesus. He pretended as if there was nothing wrong. It was all acting. Verse 16, and from that time he sought opportunity to betray him. Verse 20, now when the even was come, he sat down with the twelve, and as they did eat, he said, Verily, I say unto you, that one of you shall betray me. Verse 25, Then Judas, which betrayed him, answered and said, Master, is it I? He said unto him, Thou hast said. Now, the word master in the Greek and the Hebrew is the word rabbi, uh, which means teacher or masterful teacher. So Judas addressed Jesus as master. One Bible scholar points out that in all four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, Judas never once called Jesus Lord. He always called him teacher or rabbi or masterful teacher. This tells us that Judas acknowledged Jesus as a great teacher, but he never submitted to Jesus' authority. He never called him Lord. Jesus begins to make a covenant with his disciples and with us at this Lord's Supper. Verse 26, And as they were eating, Jesus took bread and blessed it and break it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat. This is my body. The bread represented all of a person's possessions. So when you broke the bread with someone else, you were saying, everything I have is at your disposal. Verse 27, And he took the cup and gave thanks and gave it to them, saying, Drink ye all of it. The wine or the juice it might have a drop of blood in it. This followed the bread. When you partook of someone else's blood, you were partaking of their life. Again, the bread was the promise. I'll give you everything I have. The blood followed the promise. If required, if necessary, I will give my own blood to empower the promise. Jesus fulfilled all of this covenant when he hung on the cross. Matthew 26, 28, for this is my blood of the New Testament, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. Now the word testament here would be more accurately translated covenant. That's what in the Greek, it's the word covenant. 
a covenant made between two or more people. Jesus makes it very clear he is making a covenant. Matthew chapter 27 verse 3. Then Judas, which had betrayed him, when he saw that he was condemned, repented himself and brought again the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and elders. Uh, this says Judas repented himself, but Judas did not really repent for what he had done. To repent means to make a course correction. Judas did not make a course correction. He could have, but he did not. Um, in John's account of the Lord's Supper, he records Jesus washing the disciples' feet. And even though Jesus knew Judas would betray him, he served him the bread and the wine, and he washed his feet. Perhaps Jesus was still giving Judas the opportunity to soften his heart and repent. This, I've never been involved in, in one of these foot washing ceremonies, but apparently it's a very humbling experience. And perhaps Jesus was, was hoping that all of this would soften Judas's heart and Judas would get a revelation of Jesus's love for him and he would truly repent. Jesus could have exposed him in front of the other disciples, but he didn't. He covered for Judas and he kept it quiet. But when Judas saw that Jesus was being condemned and taken away, he did become overwhelmed with remorse and he was sorry about what he had done, but he did not repent. Judas pretended to make a covenant with Jesus, going through the motions, taking the bread and wine. All the while, he had already betrayed Jesus. He was faking it at the communion table. When he partook of the bread and wine in that manner, being a covenant breaker and betrayer, he partook of that covenant meal unworthily. In John's account, in John uh, chapter 13, verse 30, he says, and then having received the sop, went out immediately, talking about Judas, went out immediately, and it was night. Judas literally and spiritually went out into the darkness. He went out and he hung himself and he died. Now in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, we have Paul's account of communion and he tells us before we eat of the bread and drink of the cup, we are to examine ourselves so that we are not guilty of the body and blood of Jesus. In verse 23, he says, For I received of the Lord that which also I delivered unto you, that the Lord Jesus the same night in which he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he brake it and said, Take, eat, this is my body which is broken for you. This do 
in remembrance of me. The voice translation says, keep doing this so that you and all who come after will have a vivid reminder of me. So this brings out the meaning of this do in the King James Version. Uh, it's a strong command. It, it means emphatically do this. Find a way to do this very thing that I'm doing. This do in remembrance of me. Uh, remembrance in the, the Greek means to repeat something over and over, to recall or be mindful. So Jesus was referring to a lifestyle, not a ritual. Jesus was saying, when he said, this do in remembrance of me, he was saying, everything I'm doing for you, everything I have is at your disposal. I will give my life to back it up. Now, you do this for one another and for the church. In the same way, I'm doing this for you. That's what it means do this in remembrance of me. Do the same thing I'm doing for one another and for the church in the same way I'm doing it for you. Jesus was talking about keeping covenant with each other, walking in love, staying out of strife. We know from reading 1 Corinthians that there was strife in that church. There were factions within the church. They were taking each other to court. They were believers in Christ. They were going to church. But their lives were not demonstrating a lifestyle of being in covenant with others and with Christ. And as a result, they were partaking of communion unworthily and they were guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. And this is why Paul is writing about this. In uh, Verse 27, Wherefore, whosoever shall eat of this bread and drink of this cup of the Lord unworthily shall be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. Verse 28, But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of that bread and drink of that cup. Now the word examine here in the Greek means to pass the necessary test. The necessary test here for taking communion worthily is being in covenant with Christ and with others as a lifestyle. We are to judge ourselves. Do we pass this fitness test? We are to examine our hearts. Do we pass the test? Are we walking in covenant with others? Are we walking in love? Are, are we uh, not in sin? Are we not living in sin? Uh, Judas did not pass the fitness test to receive communion. He did not meet the requirements. And Paul was issuing a warning to the Corinthian believers that there is a requirement we need to meet in order to partake of communion and not be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. He goes on in verse 29 to say, For he that eateth and drinketh unworthily, eateth and drinketh damnation to himself, 
not discerning the Lord's body. So these people, even though they were believers, they were going to church, they were not passing the fitness test to receive communion. Some were in sin, some were in strife, uh, but they were acting like that they were in covenant with one another. And that's what Paul meant by partaking of the bread and the cup unworthily. Verse 30, he goes on to say, For this cause many are weak and sickly among you, and many sleep. Because they were partaking of communion in a wrong way, they were not passing the necessary test. And as a result, many were weak, sick, and some had died. They were not keeping the terms of the covenant in order to receive the blessings. Remember, there's the blessings and curses as part of a covenant. They were breaking a spiritual law and experiencing the negative consequences. It's not like God was just striking them down. They were breaking a spiritual law and experiencing the negative consequences. Even though they were believers and going to church. Now we know there are churches where anybody walks in off the street, takes communion with no questions asked about whether they're even born again at the bare minimum. This communion table is reserved for believers who are in a covenant lifestyle with Christ and with others. And it should be taken seriously. This is what Paul is telling us. This doesn't mean we have to be perfect to receive communion. We just need to get our hearts right with God and with others. And then, when we've examined ourselves, we've given ourselves the fitness test, our hearts are right with God and with others, then we come and partake of the bread and drink of the cup, and we will receive the blessings and the benefits of communion. When we're in right relationship with God and walking in covenant with others, as Jesus has commanded us to do, there are blessings in the bread and the cup. There's healing, forgiveness, provision, protection, peace of mind. This is why Paul says we are to examine our hearts and make sure everything is right between us and God and us and our brothers and sisters in Christ before we put that bread in our mouth and that juice to our lips. When we partake of communion, we're supposed to experience the presence of God. 1 Corinthians 10, 16, there uh, Paul refers to communion, and he says, the cup of blessing which we bless, is it not the communion of the blood of Christ? Again, the cup represents the blood of Christ, blessing, wholeness, forgiveness, deliverance. Verse 16 continues by saying, the bread which we break, is it not the communion of the blood of Christ? Communion, again, is this Greek word koinonia, which means fellowship, joint participation or involvement, a, a connection. We should release our faith 
that we are partaking and connecting with the blood and the body of Christ in order to experience the benefits of communion. Verse 18, Behold Israel after the flesh, are not they which eat of the sacrifices, partakers of the altar? Under the old covenant, uh, the priest, you know, they offered and partook of the sacrifices in the temple. And when they did this, they were in the presence of God. So he gives us um, an old covenant, uh, a godly example here of priests who offered the, and partook of sacrifices in the temple. They were in the presence of God. Then in verse 19, he's going to use a pagan example. He says, what say I then, that the idol is anything, or that which is offered in sacrifice to idols is anything? So he's referring to the pagan temples where sacrifices were made to idols. There were demon spirits there. And these believers uh, in the Corinthian church, they once had been partakers of that idol worship. They had come out of that. Verse 20, he says, Pagans sacrifice things to the devil. He, this is what he's saying in verse 20. Pagans sacrifice things to the devil, not to God. And I don't want you to have fellowship with devils. So, um, you know, if Christians went into these pagan temples, they would be influenced by these demonic spirits that were there. They might go in free, but they would come out oppressed. Verse 21, you cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of devils. You cannot be partakers of the Lord's table and of the table of devils. So Paul's saying you cannot be in covenant with God and in covenant with the world at the same time and partake of the Lord's table of goodness. And he says Judas is a prime example of that. I believe this is why he's, uh, all of these uh, records of communion, they all began with Judas's betrayal of Jesus. You can't be in covenant with God and the world at the same time. And that's exactly what Judas was trying to do. He was a prime example. You cannot do that and partake of the Lord's table of goodness. It, it's going to be bad news, which Judas is a prime example of. Paul says a pagan temple where demon spirits permeate the atmosphere, you can be influenced by them. So in the same way, when we come to the communion table, the presence of God is here in, in these elements. The Lord's table also carries the idea of business or money changing. In other words, the Lord's table, you could compare it to a bank where you can make withdrawals. The Lord's table, in other words, it's a bank full of goodness and his presence permeates communion. In, in this bank, so to speak, of the Lord's table, there's healing, there's forgiveness, there's wholeness, there's protection. Everything we need in the bread and blood of Jesus, it's ours. We just need to release our faith 
to participate and engage with the body of Christ and receive the benefits. So just make sure that your heart is right with God and with others. Then come to the bank and make your withdrawal. Amen. Thank you, Father. You have made us joint heirs with Jesus. By faith we partake in the body and blood of Jesus. We withdraw everything we need in our lives at this communion table in the Lord's presence. In Jesus' name, amen.